Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. We have been doing a series for the last several weeks on the armor of God, donning the armor of God. And uh, before I say anything else about it, let's read the passage once again. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, we read, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of, the a- of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We started by looking at the nature of warfare, spiritual warfare, that we are engaged in. And we remember that we're on a mission, and that mission is to go into the world and preach the gospel. And we who are saved must remember that our goal is not just to live long and prosper. Uh, that's a, that's a, probably a bigger hurdle for charismatic believers, word of faith believers, to remember that this isn't about just getting all the blessings of God in our life, but, but using these blessings, availing of ourselves of these promises to accomplish the goal of reconciling, of uh, being used to reconcile as many people with God as we possibly can. Uh, our goal, again, is not to live long and prosper and then go to heaven. We have been rescued from hell, and we are now agents of that reconciliation and involved in rescuing others from hell. But there is opposition to that mission. We have an enemy Uh, That enemy, the accuser, Satan, is engaged in a massive campaign of deception. Never forget that that really is his weapon, deception. And so his his weapon is used in the thought realm, in the spirit realm, in the ideas realm, in the worldview realm. And uh, we have to remember that our enemy is not our neighbor, even if our neighbor has bought into that deception. Our enemy is not our government, even if our government has been deceived. Our enemy is not the schools, it is not Hollywood, it is not drugs, it is not social injustice. All of these things are tools, or rather avenues, through which the enemy works or tries to work his deception. And we look at the belt of truth as holding all of our armor together. We start from the position that Christianity is true that Jesus Christ is the only hope of mankind. You see, there is, we don't have to be anti-science or anti-education in order to, to, to say that no amount of science, no amount of education, no amount of welfare, no amount of military power, or any host of other proposed solutions to the world are going to solve the world's problems. Do you understand this? 
we don't have to be anti-welfare to recognize that welfare is not going to fix the world's problems. We don't have to be anti-military to recognize that military power is not going to fix the world's problems. What's the problem? We are a fallen race. The fallenness of man and the sin nature is the root of all the problems in the world. And therefore, the only way we can fix the problems of the world is to fix people. And we can't fix people, only Jesus can do that. That is the bedrock truth of the gospel, that he is our only hope. Every other application of the armament that, that is described in this passage is rooted and empowered by the reality of that worldview, that Jesus Christ is the only way. Now, uh, the breastplate of righteousness protects our hearts from the accusations of the enemy. It reminds us, again, that the righteousness that protects us and makes so much of his, of his uh, uh, so many of his promises available to us is not our righteousness. It is his. I'm, I'm not going to re-preach these. I'm just kind of doing a quick review. The shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace tell us we are going somewhere. Shoes are meant for walking, and we are walking. We are going into the world to preach the gospel. And last week, we looked at the shield of faith, and our focus was on two things. One, that faith is not an offensive weapon used to acquire things, but rather a defensive weapon to protect something that is already yours. Two, is that the shield, in order to be able to quench all the fiery darts of the enemy, must be soaked, must be saturated in the water of the word. Now, a couple of words about last week before we look today at the helmet of salvation. And I shared this at men's prayer yesterday, so forgive me guys, you're going to hear it again. Uh, after the service last week, I was, I was really uh, kind of overwhelmed at the number of people that had something to say about it. Good things. I mean, just really, really kind words. That, I mean, and they were, it wasn't just, hey, good word today. It was like, maybe the best sermon you've ever preached. I didn't want it to end. And then I was getting texts and emails about, uh, about this message, this particular message. And, I'm, and so and when I'm reading these things and hearing these things, my reaction was, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this because I never listened to myself. But, and I remember thinking, it was a good service. It was a great service. But I remember thinking, I, 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 I always want to deliver a good sermon, but what was it about that message that struck a chord with so many people? So, uh, so first of all, I get on uh, Facebook, and, and I, I find the first place I find the message, and I click on it, and, uh, and the recording is a disaster. I don't know if anybody saw that, and I don't know if, that, if, if it was like that in live stream, but there was something off, and sounded like I was preaching underwater, and everything was just kind of bleh. It's like, well, I can't listen to that. But the audio, audio recording for the podcast is just fine. So I listened to it the next day while I was cleaning my garage. And, uh, and I listened to it, and you know what I thought? It was okay. It was an okay message. But you know what I think? You know what I think it was? I think it was just being here. I think, I'm not saying God didn't speak something wonderful to you while I was speaking. And I'm not trying to do the, oh, the message was just okay, gosh. <laughs> you think it's great, that's wonderful. That's not it. I think that there is something powerful and real about when we come together to hear the word. You know, uh, you'd never know this by looking, but I enjoy food. I enjoy a good meal. 
And uh, it doesn't have to be fancy. My wife kind of rolls her eyes when I say, well, I told her, I said, hey, guess what I've got? Uh, if, we, if, you're not, if you don't have to work at MR tonight, I've got stuff to make fajitas. Sounds pretty exciting, right? She says, oh, good. Why? Because we have, we have Mexican food all the time. I mean, my go-to snack is a tortilla with a spoonful of beans on it and sprinkle of cheese, throw it in the microwave, put a little hot sauce on it, I'm good to go. And I never get tired of it. Uh, if, uh, man, if I find a Twinkie in the cabinet, I'll eat that and I'll enjoy it. But it's not anywhere near as enjoyable as it is sitting down with family, with friends, and feasting. It's nothing like Thanksgiving. Something like that when we get together to enjoy a meal together. Same thing. I can read. I can listen to a message. And this is where I'm speaking to those of you at home. Uh, I hate it if you can't be with us. But if you can be with us, and you're not, you are missing something, even if you see the whole service, because there is something powerful about the assembly. There is something special about the way he manifests himself in the body when the body is together. So, uh, thank you for the kind words, but uh, I really do think what excited, what, what, what so many people found exciting was simply the manifest presence of God in our midst, and it's something I look forward to every week, being with you. Amen? Okay, praise and worship team, come on up. No, we haven't talked about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, First Corinthians, let's, let's uh, what do we want to talk about today? The helmet of salvation, that's what it is, the helmet of salvation. Once again, a defensive piece of armor meant to protect what? Your noggin, your head, your mind. Your brain. Uh, we talked about how the breastplate, uh, you know, so important. And that the, the, when it talks about the protection that the breastplate of righteousness offers, uh, breastplate protect what? Protects the heart. If you're going to shoot to kill somebody, you're going to aim for their heart or you're going to aim for their head. So here we go. We've got the breastplate to protect our heart. We've got the helmet to protect our heads from these kill shots. And before we talk about it being a helmet, how it is a helmet, uh, let's talk about Let's look at a few, just a couple of scriptures that talk about salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, we read this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, with fear and trembling. Now these passages both clearly indicate a process. And we're talking about salvation, the process of salvation. And if you take these scriptures in isolation, they can be misapplied to support the belief that, um, that many people have about Christianity. Some of them who even claim to be Christians claim things like, well, God has told us what he wants us to do and we just do our best and hope it's good enough to make heaven. That's not the Christian belief at all. And I remember, I've, I've shared this story before, so I'm, I'm not going to share it in any detail, but that was what, in my high school class, the isms class, where we talked about different worldviews, different economic systems, different religions, and we didn't go deep, but it was just to sort of give us an idea. And when uh, the teacher got to Christianity, Christianity be believes that 
you know, God has given us the law, and uh, we do our, people are supposed to do their best and hope their good, de- good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, and they believe that the good people go to heaven and the bad people go to hell. And I'm thinking, no, we don't believe that. I mean, I was only 17, and I knew we didn't believe that. That's not what Christianity, that's closer to Islam, that worldview of having your good deeds weighed against your bad deeds. My goodness, and that's the kind of thing that'll drive you nuts uh, if you're, you know, especially drove me nearly nuts as a young person, but if, if it doesn't drive you nuts, it'll drive you to legalism, and you'll drive everybody else nuts. No, that's not what Christianity says. But here we are looking at this process. We know better about that because of verses like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When Jesus described it, he talked about what? The new birth. This is something that happens in a moment. There's a decision you make to receive payment for your sins. And when we talk, uh, thinking about birth, you know, we are fully human from birth. We're actually fully human from conception, you understand. But there is nothing that you can do or achieve that will make you more of a physically complete human being. Right? I'm no more human today, no more fully human than I was 57 years ago. But we do grow. We do develop. I'm a bigger human than I was 57 years ago. Uh, There are things, you know, a baby is fully human, and there are things that babies do that are normal for babies that are not normal for five-year-olds. There are things that 10-year-olds do. There are ways that 10-year-olds think that are perfectly normal and acceptable for 10-year-olds things that we shouldn't be doing or thinking when we're 20 and 30 and older because we grow, we develop. We are not becoming more of a human being. We are simply growing. You know, and this, is, uh, this applies to our brains as well. This applies to our minds. I remember being fascinated to learn this, and this, uh, I'm sure anybody who has studied uh, educational psychology or child development knows these things. That uh, except there, there are rare cases with people who have special brains that can do special things. But for, in most cases, you can't, for instance, take a nine-year-old and teach them algebra because the brain isn't fully developed. It is still a fully human brain, but there are certain synapses that haven't closed, certain neural pathways that simply aren't there to support a function like algebraic equations. And then you've got special minds like mine that never get to that point. I have a specialized brain. It's too focused in other areas where I'm so... Never mind, never mind. I'm not going to pursue that. I'm not going to speak that over myself. I can, I can do algebra very well in Jesus' name. Thank God I never have to. But, and, and so they say, and this is, of course it varies from individual, from individual to individual, but it's around 11 or 12 that the brain begins to reach the point where it can be taught algebra. So on one hand, uh, it's not just ignorance of algebra that makes an eight or nine-year-old incapable of doing algebra, but it's not just being 12 or 13 that makes somebody capable of doing algebra. You don't automatically know algebra when you're 13 years old. You've got to be taught it, but you can't be taught it much earlier than that. 
Same thing with risk assessment. We talk about that frontal cortex or whatever it is where, uh, you know, why do teenagers do stupid things? Why do they die stupid ways? Why do they take such ignorant risks? Because there's a part of their brain that simply isn't fully developed till they're 24 or 25 years old. And it's this, and that's why, and this is why insurance rates are so high up until that moment, because you're just a part of you remains stupid until you reach a certain level. You can't make these wise decisions. Why can't I jump off, jump off the bridge when I can't see the water, Dad? Silly things like that. How bad can it possibly hurt? Anyway, uh, so, but when we are born again, we, we recognize that uh, before we're born again, we re- have to recognize because of we were born in sin, because of the, the very doctrine of original sin, that we are hardwired to respond to certain things, to be drawn to certain things. Hard, we are hardwired to think wrong. And this is the root of our proclivities to sin, to do evil. And when we are born again, when we experience a new birth, that's when we are saved. In that moment, we become a new creature, just as surely as we are fully human when we are conceived and born. We are fully, spiritually reborn in that moment. Now, there is a development that needs to take place after that. But it's super important to recognize that at the moment of salvation, I received a new nature. A new nature. A reborn spirit. Now, we can call this process growing up spiritually. Many people have. Brother Hagin wrote a book called Growing Up Spiritually. I tend to agree with that legendary teacher of Scripture, the right Reverend Dr. Larry Millis, who believes that that's a misnomer, that we really don't grow up spiritually. We are born again by the Spirit of God, and that new life, that new spirit is not lacking. It is not immature. It's given to us by the Spirit of God. And that spirit is not drawn to sin. But our flesh is still here. And it is our flesh that still is drawn to sin and and, and responds to temptation. Our spirit is connected and drawn to a holy God. And so what happens is we wind up, there is a battle going on between what our spirit craves and what our flesh craves. God speaks to us. He draws us spiritually while the enemy works on our flesh. So where is this battle taking place? in that interface. And what is that interface? It's the mind. It's the soul. That's where the battleground is. Now you've seen this, uh, you've seen the old two wolves story, right? Usually has a picture of a Native American and a little silhouette of two wolves and the old wise man says, and this is a simple version, there's a longer version, but the simple version is this, inside you are two wolves. One is evil and the other one is good. And which one will you, which one will win? Anybody know? The one you feed. The one you feed. Now this has uh, spawned several pretty hilarious memes. If you type in two wolves meme, you'll get an eyeful. And my favorite one is this. Inside you are two wolves. The first one is named Toby. The second one is also named Toby. Both wolves are named Toby. Sorry. Or there's one, there's a doctor looking at an x-ray, and it says there are two wolves inside you. I don't even know how you're still alive. Now, 
What I don't like about this story, the two wolves story, is that it more or less embraces this duality, uh, dualism concept where you've got two equal and opposite forces in you and that they're they're really just a part of you. and that's not, that's not scriptural either. What, the only thing I like about it, in fact, is it, it acknowledges this tension that on one side you have something in you, the Spirit of God, if you're born again, drawn to do the right thing, and you've got the flesh, the remnants, the stain of the sin nature that live on in your members still being tempted to things of the flesh. And, that, and it acknowledges that there's a responsibility that we have somewhere along the line to do something that's going to cause us to respond one way or the other. So what we may call growing up spiritually is more precisely learning to walk after the Spirit. If my spirit is attuned to God, but my flesh is drawn to evil, how do I do good? Uh, Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, says this, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? Here's another oldie but goodie. Since, again, all Paul did there was state the problem. Walk after the Spirit and you won't, pursue the lust, uh, won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, how do I walk after the Spirit? Uh, and we're talking about the battleground uh, of the mind. Uh, here's, here, listen, you've heard this before, but I'm gonna, you'll, it won't hurt you to hear it again. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It starts with what you are thinking about. If we are going to be outwardly changed, and when I say outwardly, I mean our actions, our habits, our characteristics, we are going to have to think right. Romans chapter 12, and you all know this one, but beginning in verse 1, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, this is closely connected to the breastplate of righteousness. We know that we are clothed in his righteousness. That is, if we know. The helmet of salvation is our protection against the thoughts that rise up against this knowledge. This is why the word talks about taking every thought captive. This is why it says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Or we can simply say, think on these things. When the same garbage keeps coming out of your mouth. Listen to me now. When the same garbage that, if the same thing again and again, day after day, week after week, keeps coming out of your mouth, or you continue to be convinced that you are a loser, that you are hopeless, that you are weak, that you are defeated, you need to ask yourself, where are these thoughts coming from? Because they are not coming from God. God. 
if we see these thoughts as fiery darts, then we recognize, we know that this is what the enemy is launching at us, and these must be quenched with what? The shield of faith that is soaked in the Word. And we, we apply or don that helmet of salvation by thinking, by meditating on what God has said about us. Don't even joke about that. I'm just a loser. Don't get up in the morning and say, I'm always sick. I always hurt. You can acknowledge, hey, I'm in physical pain like I was yesterday, but what ought to come out of your mouth is, this pain can't stay. I'm getting better. Tomorrow, according to the word of God, I'm getting better, and tomorrow I expect to feel better. Uh, Healing belongs to me. Uh, I am not... uh, by definition, a sick person. I am not, by definition, a sinner. I am not depressed. I am not a loser. I am the head and not the tail. What does the Word say about us? That He has caused us to be victorious in all things, right? That we've been made more than conquerors. But I don't feel like it. You don't think like it. Renew your mind. Now, remember, these are the things that you have to replay in your mind. The truths that God has spoken, truths like, Uh, Christ died for you. God loves you. Jesus Christ rose in victory over the grave and shares that power and life with you. Don't think about it as just a general truth, but as a personal truth. This is how much Jesus loves me. This is what God, the creator of the universe, did for me. He has a plan for you. He has made promises to you. And listen, you can't just hear this in church and and spend the rest of the week filling your mind with garbage and expect things to change. I joke about eating junk, and I don't eat just junk, but... Uh, you know, this is an exciting time of year because the garden is starting to be really productive. We can go out and get some zucchini and tomatoes and cucumbers and radishes and carrots are becoming up soon. And uh, we've, we're past asparagus season, but growing in the middle of all this, I don't know if, how many of you are into this sort of thing, but there's a very uh, prolific weed called purslane. Anybody know what purslane is? It's a succulent and it grows just very fast very big and will cover uh, it's kind of a ground cover but it grows a little little higher uh, what you maybe didn't know about purslane is it, it is a hundred percent edible and one of the healthiest things uh, that you can eat now not if you've sprayed if you've sprayed your yard for weeds and this stuff comes up i wouldn't eat it there but if it comes up in your garden and it's chemical free wash it you can eat the stems you can eat the leaves you can eat the flowers and it is literally a superfood. And it's not bad. Tastes kind of lemon peppery stuff. Now, I still got to pull it up because it'll choke everything out. You can't just let it go. But when this stuff first starts coming up, I'll get a handful, take it in the house, wash it off, eat a mouthful of this purslane and feel like I am a healthy eater. And I might do that twice a week, which is fine. I'm not saying you need to eat it, you know, three meals a day, but... I can't really call myself a healthy eater if what I'm eating when I'm not eating purslane is Totino's crisp and t- or party pizzas, uh, Twinkies, as I mentioned before, and, and all this, and, and you know, if I drink pop every day. No, you know, I can't, two fistfuls of purslane aren't going to combat that. Now, 
it's good that you're here in church and hearing the word of God. And you might walk out of here today feeling like, wow, that was healthy. That was spiritually enriching. It was powerful. And I'm not saying you can't uh, read the Sunday funnies. I'm not saying you can't watch a John Wayne movie or something like that. I am saying that if nothing else this week does something to feed your spirit, then this message isn't going to do you much good in the long run. Well, I walked out of church feeling pretty pumped up, but it turned out to be a really junky week. Well, what did you feed on? What did you read this week? What did you watch? What did you listen to? What did you meditate on? Because all of those things are going to have an impact on what comes out of your mouth. And this is where the last message in this series is going. When we talk about truly donning the armor of God, it comes down to what is coming out of your mouth. Because your words have power. Again, we, don't, we say, well, we don't want to get legalistic. We don't want to get crazy. Well, maybe we do. We want to see miracles. We want to see the power of God. It might encourage us to read and remember guys like Smith Wigglesworth, who wouldn't allow us even so much as a newspaper in his house. He wanted nothing. He wanted his mind to be saturated with nothing but the Word of God. Well, and that's why we, he had a, such a powerful ministry of miracles. If we were willing to make certain sacrifices and be as dedicated as that, we would see more of that stuff in our midst, right? And remember this, that this isn't about our position. This isn't about our accomplishments. It's about our identity, who we are. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, and I'm getting near the end, so rejoice. Let this mind be in you. I'm Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let me say a couple things about this, and I'm not going to go real long on it. And I know it's been a while, but I, I covered this when we were in the book of Philippians. Uh, many moons ago, but it's, when it starts off there, it says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. When you're reading this passage, never stop there. I have heard heresy preached on that one verse because I've actually, and, and thank God, it's not widespread, but I've actually heard people say, see, the mind that we are supposed to have is the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ isn't afraid to consider itself equal with God. We should consider ourselves equal with God. That is not what this verse is saying at all. You know this, right? Chirp, chirp. Listen, he's saying, this, let, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. And then it's sort of a parenthetical statement. Remember, this is Jesus who was God in the flesh. And he wasn't wrong in recognizing that he was equal with God. And it was this Jesus who, and then we go on to describe the mind of Christ. Not the brain of Christ, not the knowledge of Christ, but his mindset, which was what? To humble himself. Who even though he knew he was God, he didn't go around acting like God. He acted like a man. He became man. He took the form of man. It bears repeating that even the miracles that Jesus did, he did not do as God in the flesh, but as a man filled with the Holy Spirit 
operating in perfect faith, unencumbered by the sin nature. You see? He didn't have to overcome the sin that, that lives in our flesh. It didn't exist. So he had unencumbered uh, faith without roadblocks, perfect faith, faith, but he did it as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. That's the mindset that we have to embrace. We get our minds right and our confidence soars. We remember again what this battle is about, what our winning is about. We are living the gospel and preaching the gospel for what? To rescue sinners from hell, to win the lost, right? We need to constantly remind ourselves that it's that. This is not about us, except, I take that back, that's not quite true. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. They say it's not about us. You know what? It is about us. It's just not just about us. It's entirely wrong. If we say it's not about us at all, uh, we are missing something. And we're actually misunderstanding the nature of God the Father. You understand? What good father doesn't desire the best things for his children? Now, a father can, a natural father can overdo it. I love my children, so I'm going to do everything I can to see to it that they never experience any hardship. I'm going to make sure that they have all the money that I can possibly give them, and I'm not going to saddle them with any responsibility because to love them means to make their life easy and comfortable. That's not good parenting, is it? But if I love my children and I want them to mean something to the world, if I want them to accomplish something, if I want their lives to mean something to somebody other than them, and they achieve that, and if they're walking in that, uh, uh, a, a humorist, a, a writer, I, won't, I, I think actually Dave Barry said this. He said, uh, my, my, my mother used to say this, I'd rather be rich and healthy than sick and poor. And that still makes a lot of sense to me. And, and it was funny coming from him, not a Christian, because some people say, well, I'd rather be uh, healthy and poor than rich and sick. Well, I'd rather be healthy and rich, wouldn't you? I mean, uh, what, and what, if, you're, if you're a parent, you say, well, I'd rather have my kids healthy. I would too. But if they're healthy, if they're spiritually healthy, I also want them rich. I want them to have things. What, what parent doesn't? You want things, don't you? I'm not saying we have to have, you know, living in the literal lap of luxury. That's not what I'm talking about. But we ought to be prosperous in the biblical sense, where we have not just what we need, but an abundance so that we can give to every good work that comes along. We ought to be able not only to live well, but to live generously. Okay? This is not an either-or. Do you want good kids, or do you want well-off kids? I want good, well-off kids, and so does God. He wants us to grow. He wants us to develop he wants us to get our minds right so that we can think right, so that we can speak right and change things. And he wants to bless us. Ah, he only wants to bless you to get out and change the world. No, he wants to bless me because he loves me. But he also wants me to remember that I need to be out there changing the world. Yeah, I'll take care of you and love you. And, and just I'll even be extravagantly generous with you. But stay on mission. Stay on point. Don't forget why you're here. We can relax and enjoy all this stuff in heaven. Stand up with me. This is as good a time as any to invite you into this exciting way of thinking and living.
this is not a message about just be positive. Positive thinking makes a winner. Positive thinking does make a, a, it'll change people's lives. But you can, uh, this isn't about just thinking about yourself what you wish was true, what you wish were true. It's not just thinking about what you want out of life. It's about thinking about, training yourself to think about what God has said about you. This isn't about just projecting this image. I forget the name of that, uh, that book that was all over the place for a while, one of Oprah's big deals. It's like, it's just about visualize it and say it. There's a lot of faithy sound and stuff, but it wasn't attached to any real truth. This isn't about just visualizing something in your mind only and, and uh, pursuing that. It's about seeing what God says. It's about seeing his truth and speaking and training our mind to think those things. And they will be manifested. This is a wonderful way to live. It's the only way that promises not just fulfillment, because it's what we were created for, but it promises us heaven, eternity with him. Remember what the problem is. Separation from God caused by the sin nature. Remember what the solution is. The blood of Christ. He is the only way out of this mess. If you desire to get out of that mess today, if you desire to get on the track of the life that God himself has planned for you as an individual, and you've never bowed your knee before Jesus Christ, today's your day. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.